0: Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Well, uh, if you're just joining us today, we're preaching through... Uh, the book of Mark, and we come today uh, to Mark chapter 5, uh, verse 21 which is, uh, and following, which is printed on the insert in the inside of your bulletin. And um, w- w- one of our practices here at Hope is to try to preach through the whole Bible. And, and w- the way that we do that is we'll preach a gospel, and then we'll preach a, a topical series, then we'll preach a New Testament epistle, then we'll preach a topical series, then we'll teach an old, preach an Old Testament. Book And so, in that kind of rotation, we end up preaching a gospel about every other year. Uh, And so, one of the great benefits of staying at the same place uh, for the 20-plus years that God has kept me here is uh, this is the third time um, I get to preach through the book of Mark. And consequently, uh, I can look back at what I did the first time. I preached through it or the second time i preached through it and it was fascinating uh, last week as i was looking at this because uh, the first time i preached through this was september 21st 2003 um, when i was 34 years old and as i read that sermon what i realized is i was really having a hard time connecting with this passage And the reason that I was having a problem connecting with it is that this passage is about being helpless and yet continuing to hope in God. And that was a struggle for me at 34 because hope was a year and a half old. And I was not feeling helpless at all. I was excited I was full of dreams and energy and idealism, and uh, we were growing, and I was kind of living my dream. In a sense, I was a lot like the disciples are in this passage, right? Just like me, their service to Jesus had just begun, and they had come to Him in a helpless condition, and they had experienced Him transforming them, giving them amazing power and watching him heal people, watching him do the impossible. And so, like them, I was very confident, overconfident, to be honest, and had very high hopes for tomorrow. And that's kind of where our passage picks up in verse 21, where we read, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. Now, um... The reason I bring that up is because I have a suspicion that some of you may feel similar. After all, you made it to Charlotte, and you've done well enough in your career that many of you have been able to start a family and to buy a home in Cotswold and start a church with your best friends in spite of the trials of COVID. If that's you, then you may have a hard time connecting with this passage. Because one of the things this passage is going to reveal to us is that when we're in this state of kind of optimism, because we're fulfilling our desires to accomplish the American dream, um, we may be near Jesus, we may in fact even be following Him, but we're not necessarily in touch with Him. We're not connected in the deep way that God intends for us to connect. You see, Jesus has just returned um, to Capernaum, right? He'd been at Capernaum, he'd done this big series of miracles, this huge crowd had followed him, he'd called his twelve apostles, he'd gone to the other side, he'd encountered a demoniac, and now he's come back. He's come back across the Sea of Galilee and he's returned to his home base. And so as soon as word gets out that Jesus is approaching, a massive crowd starts to follow him. They, they, they line up right at the shore and watch it, because what they're doing is um, this is, you know, their version of Taylor Swift, right? This is their thing. It's like watching Taylor try to get from her bus to the hotel room, right? Or from the venue to her tour bus. There, it's, it's just crowds and crowds of people who want to see the most famous person in Israel at the time. And so, there are literally thousands of people in close proximity to Jesus, and yet only one person really touches them. Verse 24, so Jesus went with him, Jairus, we'll get back to him in a minute, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured under many doctors. She spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing, for she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? Now, before I go any further, I'd like you to try to place yourself in this story. Are you in the crowd of people who come to church every week because you like watching Jesus? In fact, you may have even seen Him radically change the lives of other people, but you haven't connected with Him yourself yet because you've never taken Him your helplessness. Or maybe you're like one of the disciples. You've taken, Jesus, your helplessness before, and he really touched you, but somehow you've gotten past that. You've learned a thing or two about how to relate to others so that you're not as helpless as you used to be. And when Jesus asks you who touched me, it's been so long since you've allowed yourself to feel helpless and hope only in Him that it doesn't cross your mind to quickly scan the crowd for the most helpless person there. Instead, you get a little frustrated at him with the insanity of the question. Or maybe you're the woman. You're at the end of your rope. You know that you can't do anything to remedy your situation you need a miracle and you've come today helpless but hoping that god might graciously give you what you could never get on your own of those people only the woman actually touches jesus and when she does he feels power rush out of him and he stops dead in his tracks This is one of the central truths of God's Word from beginning to end. God only requires one thing of us in order to move powerfully in our lives, and that is that we bring Him our powerlessness. Hence our call to worship today from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. God's grace is free to anyone who will admit that they don't have what it takes to buy it and instead choose to listen carefully to him but this is the very thing that we're the least likely to do because if you're like me you hate feeling helpless you hate feeling that needy subsequently we walk up to christ thinking okay can we negotiate Can I give you some certain promises that I will never do that again if you'll get me out of the consequences? Or I will make these sacrifices if you give me this thing I'm really asking for. So why does God require that we bring Him our need and our helplessness in order to receive grace from Him? Because our need is the most glorious thing about us. Think about a wine glass. Uh, The thing that makes a wine glass glorious isn't the glass. It's the void in the glass and the quality of the wine that fills it. You are created by God to be a vessel whose need is designed to carry His glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10, God says this, Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. Those in touch with their weakness right now are starting to nod their heads. They know what we're afraid to admit. Our sense of security is merely an illusion. It can be stripped away with one simple change in circumstances, which almost all of us discovered during COVID. Overnight, everyone in America realized that we were powerless to protect the thing we held most dear. For some of us, it was our safety, and for others, it was our freedom. And so, what did we do? Did we look in faith to God to be our safety and to grant us a gracious freedom that only He can provide? No. We turned on one another to regain our sense of control. The simple truth is we're much weaker than we dare give ourselves credit for. But why are we so afraid of that fact? Why do we fear our weakness? For me, at least, it's because often I don't really trust God. He is operating on a timescale and in a way that I find confusing and very difficult to understand. And so, I think at some level I've got to take care of myself. Consequently, I do. Um, I'll script out arguments in my head before I have them. right? I'll say, okay, I'm going to say this, and then he'll say that, and then I'm going to say this, and then he'll say that. Or, you know, I'm going to do this, and they're going to do that, and then I'm going to do this. Uh, Why do I do that? Because I'm afraid. Uh, And subsequently, what ends up happening is I end up out of touch with both my helplessness... And the hope that Jesus came to give me. In our passage today, we see God at work in the midst of helplessness. First, with the bleeding woman, and then with Jairus. Uh, Let's begin by looking at the bleeding woman. Look again at verse 25. Now, a woman, suffering from bleeding for 12 years, had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing, for she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. It's very likely that this woman used to be rich and have standing in society before she came down with this reproductive problem because she could afford so many doctors. But this disease had cost her everything she had. First, it cost her her spirituality. Because blood was sacred in the Old Testament, God strictly regulated what bleeding things could enter the temple. One of the regulations He gave in the book of Leviticus is that a woman who was bleeding couldn't enter the temple while she was discharging blood. You see it in Leviticus 15.25, where we read, When a woman has a discharge of her blood for many days, though it is not the time of her menstruation, or if she has a discharge beyond her period, she will be unclean all the days of her unclean discharge as she is during the days of her menstruation. What that meant for this woman is that once her bleeding problem began, she could no longer go to the temple for herself. Immediately, people would notice that something was up and begin wondering about why she was no longer attending worship, which led to her second problem. This cost her socially. Not only was the woman forbidden to enter the temple, but so was anyone who touched her on that day. Leviticus 15, 27 says, Everyone who touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe in water, and he will remain unclean until evening. And so the woman had been both spiritually and socially isolated for 12 years. Now imagine if the quarantines that we had to endure during COVID had continued for 12 years, right? We'd still be in it. We'd still be at the beginning of it. And imagine you had long COVID. How that would affect you, not only spiritually, but also socially. What would you have done? I think you would have done exactly what she did. Verse 26, she had spent everything she had and had not been helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. So now she's broke. Lonely, outcast, and very spiritually confused. Why would God allow this to happen to her? Why isn't He answering her prayers for healing? Why did God cause her to lose everything that she had? So what does she do? Verse 27, having heard about Jesus, she came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His clothing. For she said, if I just touch His clothes, I'll be made well. I'd like to point out how bad her theology is at this point. She thought of Jesus as some kind of medium for magical spiritual power. No need for a relationship, no need for discipleship. All she had to do was touch him, and then boom, she'd be better, and she could sneak off, and everything would be good. And what does God do with that kind of uh, you know weak faith? Amazing things. Amazing things. Look at verse 29. Instantly her blood flow ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed from her affliction. When, uh, John Piper said it this way, when you take the limp wire of your faith and you attach it to the lightning bolt of God's grace, what happens? Explosive things happen. God meets her where she is. That should be a great encouragement to us today. We don't have to get much right if we merely get this right. We're helpless, and we're putting our hope in Jesus. God can work with that. Hence the quote on the front of your bulletin. Oswald Chambers said, When a man gets to despair, he knows that all his thinking will never get him out. He will only get better by the sheer creative effort of God... Consequently, he is in the right attitude to receive from God that which he cannot gain for himself. Of course, God loves her just the way she is, but Jesus actually loves her enough not to let her stay the way she is, so he doesn't let her sneak off. Verse 30, immediately Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, "'Who touched my clothes?' His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You see, it turns out that God doesn't merely want to take care of our problems, he wants to take care of us. She came to him expecting magic for physical healing, and what she got instead was a complete restoration. First, she gets attention instead of exclusion. Verse 32, he was looking around to see who had done this, and the woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell before him and told him the whole truth. Next, she gets intimacy instead of contempt. Verse 34, daughter, he said to her. She's no longer the bleeding woman. She's God's daughter. She's been adopted into Jesus' family. Finally, she gets spiritual transformation instead of distance. Look at what he says to her. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace And be healed from your affliction. Jesus pronounces shalom over her. A restoration to her original Edenic condition. The grace of God not only to heal her body but her heart. Are you ready to admit how like the woman we are? Are you ready to stop looking to the world to cure what's plaguing us? Are you ready to come to Jesus with the one thing in your past that's making you feel unclean today? Are you ready to admit what you're powerless to change? Are you willing to place your hope in Him in the midst of your helplessness? If you are, then you don't have to have all your theology right. You've already got the one thing you need, your need. Jesus put it this way in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What do you need today? If you're like this woman, this passage has good news for you. But most of us are actually like Jairus. Jairus was a fine, upstanding citizen, an elder in the church where Jesus preached his first sermon. If anyone deserves a break... It's Jairus. But Daddy's little girl is dying. He's helpless and still hopeful when he runs to the shore to meet Jesus. Verse 21, When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. But then Jesus does something truly maddening. He stops. Verse 30, Immediately Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Now, can you imagine being Jairus... At this point, you've just left your dying daughter's bedside and ran to the shore because you heard that Jesus is back. You've made your way through the crowd and you have secured his promise to come and heal her. When suddenly you look over your shoulder on your way back home and Jesus is no longer with you. To make matters worse, when you get back to the spot where you lost touch with him, he is focused on someone else and makes you wait on purpose. Verse 32, he was looking around to see who had done this, and the woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. How long do you think that story took for him to get the details about all the doctors and 12 years and spending all our money and what had happened and what God had done. Can you imagine being Jairus and sitting there going, oh my gosh, like how long is this going to take and what the heck does Jesus think he's doing? I don't think I can wait one more second. My daughter is dying. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like God used to be on your side, but He's not with you anymore? Ever feel confused by His absence or His actions or His inaction in the face of the things that are causing you so much pain? Jairus did. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, "'Your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore?' When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid, only believe. Now, I wonder when he said this. I wonder if it was like in the middle of the story. He's like, Oh, overheard. Oh, your daughter's dead. Turns to Jairus. Hey, don't be afraid, only believe. And then goes back to the woman. Like, okay, yeah. What yeah, in, in year eight, what happened? You know? I, I mean, I can. I can imagine just this enormous tension taking place inside the heart of Jairus as he's wrestling with, am I going to hope against hope that Jesus loves me and cares about me and knows what he's talking about while he seems to be ignoring me or not? There is an important question. This is a critical turning point for Jairus. Was he going to live by sight and put his faith in his friend's human perspective on this idea that he should stop bothering the teacher, that he's too much of a burden for God, that his problems are too big and he just should let it go and get over it and bootstrap his way through life? Or was he going to trust Jesus that he gets the final word on human life? Jesus said in Matthew ten twenty eight through 32, "'Don't fear those who can kill the body "'but are not able to kill the soul. "'Rather, fear him who is able to destroy "'both soul and body in hell. "'Aren't two par- sparrows sold for a penny, "'and yet not one of them falls to the ground "'without your Father's consent? "'Even the hairs on your head have been counted, "'so don't be afraid. "'You're worth more than many sparrows.'" Do you believe that Jesus cares about all the days of your life, all the hairs in your head, all your aches, all your pains. Because it turns out in this story there is a death to be considered, but it's not Jairus' daughter. It's not physical death. It's the death that comes when the soul falls under God's wrath and curse because of our sin. And who in this story has authority over that death, right? The death that destroys not only our bodies, but our souls. Well, Jesus does. And how exactly does Jesus acquire that kind of authority? Well, remember those quotes from Leviticus about blood and how important it is in terms of the temple and why God regulates what can bleed and what can't bleed in the temple? Well, the reason that he was doing that is because he was telling a story, and the story that God was telling in the Hebrew Scriptures is the author of life wants to adopt you into his family, but he has this problem, and the problem is your sin. And so, he is going to provide a lamb to sacrifice to take away your sins so that you can enter into his holy presence with confidence and with joy. And the lamb that he was going to provide was Jesus himself, when the author of life came down to become human. Hebrews 2, 10 through 15, describes this adoptive event. It says this, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim my name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death... He might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. You see, Jesus is able to call the bleeding woman daughter and heal her because he was willing to not only take her sickness but her sin into himself and bleed for her on the cross, enduring the death her sins deserved so that he could acquire the power to graciously heal all those who look in faith to him. And that's why he could say to Jairus, don't worry about it. Only believe in me. Put your future hope about death in me, not in your sight, not in your friends, not in your accomplishments, not in yourself. And what happened? Well, verse 37... He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they entered the place where the child was. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, to Letha kum, which is translated little girl, or in more southern terms, darling. Darling, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the little girl got up and began to walk. She was about 12 years old. And at this, they were utterly astounded. And then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So why did Jesus ask everybody to leave the room? I think it's because only those who are helpless and slightly hopeful in Him are truly ready to see what God does for those who look in faith to Christ. The question is, are we ready for that? As we enter this new year, are we ready to take Jesus our helplessness Are we willing to look to Jesus as our only hope? Are we ready to admit that we're too weak to handle life, that we're going to die, but that our hope is secure because it's not in us? It's in the one who said, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately she stood up and walked around, and at this they were completely astonished. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are astonishing, uh, not only in your power, but in your person. Thank you, Lord, that you stop any time a helpless person touches you, because you not only want to cure what ills us, you want to care for us. And bring us into the joy of being adopted as your brothers and sisters, the daughters and sons of your father, by grace through faith alone. We pray now, Lord, that you would increase our faith, that you would help us uh, to be honest about our deep need for you uh, so that we might experience the glorious grace of your power and presence in our lives. And we pray this in your name. Amen.